This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this interview. Uh, We've got uh, CEO of a company that's close to your heart. Um, And I think also we can officially say our first member of the Order of Australia on the show. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, pretty special. Uh, We are privileged to welcome Lindsay Partridge to the show. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here too. <laughs> so, uh, for those of you who haven't come across uh, Lindsay, it's quite uh, quite the resume. He um, was CEO and managing director of uh, Brickworks, ASX ticker BKW. Uh, we recently had Tom Milner on the show. Um, you would have remembered through the Brickworks listed investment company. Um, Lindsay Partridge is a ceramic engineer and one of Australia's longest serving public company CEOs. He was appointed CEO of Brickworks in 1990 and Managing Director in 2000. On the occasion of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012, honours list, Lindsay was appointed member in the General Division of the Order of Australia for service to the building and construction industry, particularly in areas of industry training and career development and to the community. And for this episode, it is part of our CEO and executive series. He is an experienced company director with substantial expertise in all things from governance, human resources, compliance, reporting, media, investor relations, mergers and acquisitions, you name it, and we're going to discuss it all. <laughs> so, Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Very impressive resume. Um, we would love to we love to start these interviews by uh, hearing the CEOs talk about their company in their own words. So, to kick us off today, um, how would you describe Brickworks? Well, because every, everybody thinks of it about being a brick company, and uh, that's not really you know, quite right. You know, 75% of our assets are investments. Um, about half our assets are invested in Washington H. Todd Patterson. About a quarter of our assets are, are invested in our property trust, which is mainly with Goodman. And then the balance is the the, the building products, um, which is Australia and the United States. That's really only a quarter of the business. So people don't think about that, but there's a lot of, I'm sure we'll get into it, but there's a lot of advantages of having a structure like that, particularly when you've got a volatile business, your main business being a volatile business, such as building products. Mm. Mm. So if you can just unpack those four divisions a bit more for people who aren't familiar with Brickworks, you said uh, investments, property trust, uh, building products in Australia, building products in North mm. America. Um 
Can you just yeah add a bit of colour to those? those yeah, I might just give you a bit of history. There's just yeah. how it worked, it worked out. Um, Brickworks uh, was on listed on the ASX in 1961, but prior to that was on the New South Wales Exchange. Um, Brickworks was formed by Sydney brickmakers who wanted to buy out the state government from brickmaking, and it was formed in, in about 34. And they did that. They, they bought out um, the state government out of brickmaking at uh, Homebush Bay, which, of course, became the site of uh, the Olympics. And, and every time the government changed for the next three or four years, it got swapped backwards and forwards. But in the end, we left it with the government to lose money. And uh, I think they ran at, <laughs> ran at a loss until the late 60s. But Brickworks existed. And then the, the chairman of Brickworks was a gentleman by the name of William King Dawes. And he owned the Austral Brick Company. The Austral Brick Company was formed in uh, 1908. And so he folded that into Brickworks. And he had two other companies. He folded them all in and they picked up some the company. So by 1961, when we listed, we had 11 dry press brickyards around Sydney. So anywhere in Sydney where you see uh, remnants of a brickworks or uh, uh, remnants of a most probably a, um, you know a landfill or something, it was usually one of our plants. Um, the most famous one, of course, down here at St Peter's. You, you know, most people know the brickworks there. That was all ours. So that that's where we got into it. We couldn't keep up after the war, right? And they started building these big factories out at Horsley Park and buying a lot of land. And in 1968, they worried that London Brick was going to take them over. And they looked on the stock exchange and they saw there was another company there called Washington H. Salt Patterson that was exactly the same size, about 26 or $27 million. And so they swapped um, a million shares each. Uh, the paper the next day said... Uh, directors on drugs, uh, <laughs> shareholders get brickbats, <laughs> which I've got that on my, on my uh, computer screen. But anyhow, um, but, so anyhow, they bought shares in each other up until about 1990 when ASIC said that's enough, it's enough. And at that point, Sol Patterson owned 49.9% of Brickworks. Um, it's a little bit less today. And we own 43% of them. So that $26 million today, we own, we own 39% today, that $26 million is worth $2.8 billion. Wow. So it's been a pretty good investment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where, that's where souls came from. And what, what we learned was that steady income and dividend stream from souls helped us get through the really tough downturns. And remember, you know, we've been through the Depression, World War Two, uh, actually World War One. You know, we've been through the Vietnam War. We went through the Whitlam years. Uh, we've been through the you know the Bob Carr shutdown housing in New South Wales. We've been th- you know we've been through everything. We've been through the GFC, and now of course we're going through the pandemic. And having that sort of income coming in for investments is one of the things that makes us strong. The brick business didn't really grow much up until really when I took over and there was a new chairman came in, Jim Jim Milner, who was the previous chairman, his nephew, Robert Milner, who's the chairman today. And uh, we started looking at other assets and we started acquiring um, other companies. And the biggest of those we bought in Australia was Bristol Limited in 2003. And we were Queensland and New South Wales and they were the rest of the country. And that put us together and that made us you know, the biggest brickmaker in Australia. We picked up roof tiles, we picked up one masonry plant. We went from there, we picked up other little brick, brick works along the way and some really great ones out of it, like Barrel Brick is one of ours. And uh, so anyhow, we then bought a whole lot of masonry plants. We ended up with about 10, 11 masonry plants around Australia, so we became the number two masonry uh, business. We got involved in some other things that didn't work, timber, uh, that didn't really work. We were in um, sewer pipes, we got out of them. We got into floor tiles. It was good for a while, then it went bad, so we got out of that. Um, but we've got a, quite a narrow, very tight sort of business at the moment. We realised that, we couldn't grow anymore in Australia, and we made the decision about three years ago that we need to expand. We need to expand offshore, and so we bought Glengarry in the northeast of the United States. We've since, since bought two other companies, uh, Sioux City Brick and Redland Brick, um, and now we um, have uh, we had about 16 plants, but they're a bit underutilised. We have now about 10 plants uh, in the US and in the northeast. 
So that's how the building products came together. We'd bought all this land in the early 60s um, for surplus claylands, but as time's gone on, we get a lot more clay comes in from um, excavations and tunnels and things. And so we've actually got more clay today than most we started at, particularly here in Sydney. But we had a lot of land that was really surplus for our needs. And we looked around and we picked a partner, which was Goodman, and it turned out to be a very good choice. Um, and they've been wonderful partners ever since. And we realised that there was a future position in industrial space, but there wasn't a future position if you had residential. And we had a lot of the old brickworks at Brookvale and at Eastwood we'd sold off as residential land after we re- uh, fixed them up. But the industrial, we thought, well, how do you know, and it's one of the hardest things to get your head around, if an industrial development doesn't stack up, it means the raw land is too expensive. And the reason that's the case is because that's the only number that can change if the yeah, is fixed. Yeah. So, okay, so if you sell it, you always think you're going to sell it too cheap. So by staying and putting in a trust and then staying in it in 50-50, as you get revaluations um, and the rent goes up, if there's any in, in, you know unfairness in the original deal, they get squared up. up. And that's exactly how, it, how, how it's worked out for us. So that land, um, now that trust is over $2 billion. Our share is $777 million. Um, it's 25% of our assets. So it's, it's been a really good uh, you know, program for us. Mm. Mm. So, Lindsay, you're a ceramic engineer by by trade, but um, you're now obviously CEO and MD of, of Brickworks. Are you able to take us through the, the path from uh, your engineering to C-suite? Well, I think the interesting thing is the fact that I was actually a ceramic engineer, but because no, most people haven't heard about it. <laughs> but, but um, you know, there was uh, my dad was interested in pottery, and there was an old lady a couple of doors down. I was a kid that used to have have a wheel and have classes and things. And after school, I'd you know muck around with them, you know, make pots and things, and that was always interesting. I always enjoyed it. And I was looking for something. I knew if I went into something like civil engineering, there'd be a thousand engineers, and you wouldn't necessarily stand out. And I had a friend that did it. And at that time, there was a lot of exciting things happening. You know, silicon chips, the space shuttle. You know, they're all using ceramics. There's a lot of exciting things happening. So anyhow, I went into it and I was in a record year of six. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and, and as things turned out, you know, um, maybe only one or two of those people was really actually interested in, in going into industry. Um, the others all wanted to be, do research and stuff like that. So, uh, look, times were tough. It was the Whitlam years. It was the 70s. Inflation was high. Unemployment was 12 or 13%. And about halfway through, I thought, I can't wait to the end to get a job. Like, I got the, you know, the backside out of my pants. I needed a job. And then I, so I applied and I got a cadetship with a company which was PGH Industries. And they were, um, they did a lot of things, but they were in, uh, in bricks. Uh, and I was doing the summer vacations. So I'd go work for them. And, and so you get accepted by the staff and had a lot of knowledge through that before I even got to the point of graduating. But so when I graduated, they very quickly, um, they had this program that wanted to accelerate people very quickly. They wanted you when you're 30 in head office because they were growing rapidly and they needed people up. And it's a bit like what we are. So, you know, within six months, I was running a factory and they worked. One of the things I think for young people I think about is you don't want to develop yourself straight up a single silo. Like if you're going up the sales and marketing or you're going up the production and then you get to the top of it and then you want to become a general manager and how do you get across the other silo? Whereas my career was, you know, I already had the technical background. Like I worked in the lab for a month and then they then they had me doing a marketing job. Then they had me running a kiln. Then they, uh, you know, sent me into state to run a plant because you know a manager was away. And then they gave me a small business. A unit, and so very quickly I had a very diverse 
range. And then I was like sales manager for a big division. And then they sent me to the United States. And I was effectively general manager at the age of 25. Wow. Jeez. Um, so <laughs> if someone's going to get to the top, you know, they want to be very young 30s in the general manager level. Because what you need is you need at some point in your career 10 years as a GM. Because it's only when you get to the general manager or the vice president level in the United States that you're really going to have to handle all the issues. You know, and there's nothing to hide behind. You've got to handle the issue, you know. Um, and that's when you really get you know, in your stripes, if you like that, um, and lose your hair or <laughs> give you a break. <laughs> well, that's right. I'm one but, step ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so it's, um, you know, and that's how it went. And then, and then, um, I, ch- I left that company. I joined Brickworks in 85 and came in. I stepped back. I was an operations manager. I had four factories. I, I, I took over this really bad factory, but I thought Brickworks had a better future than the company I was with. And that was the main thing. You know, I, was, I didn't mind what the salary was or anything else. I didn't care how hard the job was. I just wanted to start. And they were rebuilding and we pretty quickly rebuilt it in the next four or five years. And then the previous CEO wanted to retire and I, I took over in 99, as you said, and the rest is history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, you're both the CEO and the managing director of Brickworks. Just for people who are unfamiliar with that distinction, can you explain the difference between a managing director and a CEO? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, CEO is chief executive officer. You know, you're, you're the senior executive. Often they call, call you the executive director. Might make it clearer. You're executive director. So in other words, you're the, you're, you actually work in the job full time. But of course, if you want to sign any documents, well, you need a director. And so if you actually are a director, well, they usually call you managing director. Some people are both, um, and I technically could be both, but I actually just call myself managing director. Yeah, so I'm the executive director. I work there. The director point means that I, I can sign the documents as director and the size of Brickworks, that is all you seem to do is sign your name. <laughs> well, these days a lot of us don't on the computer, you know, whether it's somebody's expenses or their holiday leave form or something. But, <laughs> but you know, the important documents too, you know, and you've got, you know, lawyers and that check all the documents before you get to, you've got to sign it. But it's, it can be part, it can be onerous at times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Lindsay, from 1999, the share price has grown. When you took over uh, as CEO, the share price has grown from about $3 to where it's sitting today at about 20 which is a, uh, compound annual growth rate over 21 years of about 10%, which is uh, pretty amazing. What do you think have been some of the biggest drivers of growth and shareholder value from within the business yeah. over that period? Yeah. Well, if you had the dividend, it's actually a bit over 12, it's about 12.6. But Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, so, uh, so we should change If you want to go back to the 68, it's like 13% a year since 1968. Wow. Which is like just amazing. Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, but look, I think one of the things, and look, if you're a young investor and you're looking at, and I look at a company I want to buy, I always go back and have a look at the 10-year tables and, and you know what's happened to the share price. But if you look at what is the net assets, did the net assets go up every year? Because what a company should be doing is if it's, if it's making $100, it should be giving you know, $50 to their, their shareholders for, as a dividend and investing $50 back in the company. You know, that ratio might vary depending on what sort of company it is and how much capital it needs. But a manufacturing company needs a lot of capital. And it's very hard to grow your assets as a manufacturing company because you're depreciating it out all the time. And that sort of runs against you. Whereas when you look about building assets and you look at like the property, the property is an appreciating asset. So it's something to look at, you know, do you put your money in a car which is depreciating or do you put put your money in the car yard which is going up in value, you know what I'm saying? So you've got to increase the value and which, and of course it helps if you increase the profit. You know, if, if, if the company's been, you know, because there's three or four ways you can value a company. If you're looking at it as the value of the of the income and the, and the profits and the dividend stream, well then you've got, you've got to increase it. But if you're doing that in, in, in a business where you've got highly 
depreciating assets. It's very hard to grow it quickly. Um, but that's the first thing. The, the net tangible asset should go up every year. And there'll be very few years in that time that I've been there that hasn't gone up. And the other thing is that in that 20 years, I think I've only had one year or two years where I've, the profit's gone backwards. Um, right. So that's a good thing to get promoted to. You know, make, <laughs> make, lots of, make your boss look good by making lots of money. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's going to help your career a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we want to we wanna touch on capital allocation because, you know, it's, it's one of the more, most important roles as a CEO. Um, do you have a framework for approaching capital allocation decisions? Yeah, we do, and it may be a little bit un- unconventional. And you know, it's it's obviously the obvious thing. Everyone says, "Well, you want to put the, the, the part of your business which is getting the best returns. Make sure it's never starved of capital." You know, but but what actually happens in reality is that often you don't get many choices. Like if I, we've got forty plants out there, and and this one's got a broken, you know, whatever, you know, or the kiln's a bit flogged out, um, you know, and I've got to replace the kiln. Well, that's it's sort of like you get to the point it has to be done, or the plant stops. And so by the time you do, you know, and health and safety always goes through, environment always goes through. So you do your, all your health and safety, you do your environment. You've got no choice on that. Then you fix all the things that are about to break down and if you don't fix them and then what does that leave you with not much <laughs> so you've got to be a bit creative and um and you know and one of the things that we did we started leasing plants where we knew they were base load and this was a real really unusual thing for people like us to do but you know we're, we're building now a 130 million dollar plant 100 million dollars of that is leased it's a base load plant now at least you've got to pay the lease whether the plant runs or not so it's a base load it's going to go no matter what under all conditions right so you can always pay the lease and we bury that in the production cost and what that allows us to do if we didn't do that we couldn't afford the capex for a long time in the future we can bring that forward we can get the return immediately and the saving is such on the modernization and the efficiency in the plant we can absorb it in the production cost and so it works good and so that's how we find an extra angle which we can get get the finance to really get over those um, those plants but there's a there's a few other things with capital allocation because it's not only just in plant equipment so it's like acquisitions and how you fund it the whole capital management of a large company is quite a complex issue and something that um, you know does keep me thinking from time to time at how best to uh, optimize. Yeah, it. yeah. Mm. I mean the reason that we, I mean capital allocation is always important, but the reason that we wanted to ask you in particular is because Brickworks has this history of either maintaining or in- increasing its dividend over the course of its life. I think uh, forty five or forty six years since Brickworks last had to decrease in nineteen seventy six, and that was just a one off. So I mean having that, I guess obligation or expectation that you're going to at least maintain must add another element to how you think about capital allocation. Yeah, and that's where a little bit unusual, or maybe I didn't fully explain it then, but you know, we're in a volatile business. So, you know, the, the mistake that young brickmakers make is that they wait till there's a boom on and then they run down the board and say, I want to build this new plant. Well, the boom only lasts a few years and, and then they commission, we call it, um, you know, make the decision to build in boom and then commission in doom because you know by the time the plant's ready to start the market's gone and then it's like an albatross around people's neck so what we do is that we invest in the doom we invest in the bottom to have the plant ready now we don't know we can get caught out like who knew there was going to become a pandemic you know where the government put on an incentive at the moment the market's about to boom and you know we're just bringing this brand new plant out of the ground uh, but we've got enough reserve capacity that we, we can we can carry it so that's counter cyclical yeah. now you only can do that if you've got a good asset backing mm. and that's what we can do and so therefore that means we've got the plant available we've got good plant we've got flexibility i've always got a spare plant so if the market picks up quickly i can get it on but okay to come back to your point on the dividend 
So we can pay our dividend out of the dividend we receive from Souls plus what we receive from the property trust. That covers the dividends because that's right. 75% of assets for investment. So we pay 100% of that out basically. And Souls has increased for 20 years, so that's a good start. <laughs> and the property trust earnings have gone up every year, you know, for 12 years or 14 years now and are going to continue more. So when I can sit here today and I can absolutely guarantee that our dividend will most probably be going up the next two years, you know, because I know what's coming through. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's a good chance be much much longer so that underwrites it so the building price can be volatile and, and I can, we can still cover the cover the dividend that's that's a pretty great business structure that you've created <laughs> yeah. there yeah and there has been other examples on the um, on the market at different times and then people come along and say oh you know and they, they, they break it up and then the, then the original core business goes broke mm. yeah <laughs> because what happens in the in a really bad bust up and then you, the company can't survive it just yeah. it hasn't got resources yeah. would there be uproar if you had to decrease the dividend Oh well, yeah, it'd be a good good time for me to retire. <laughs> <laughs> so we were looking at your uh, January investor update, and the value of the Souls investment and the fifty percent share of the property trust is worth about three point six billion. Correct me if these numbers are wrong. Um, and Brickworks market cap is about three billion. So in theory, investors are getting the building products business for free. How do you think about this gap between? net asset value and uh, market cap. Yeah, it gives me a lot to think about, that's for sure. Um, There's a few other twists and turns in there. I mean, if we did sell the sole shares, we've got to pay a fair bit of capital gains tax, so that pulls it back. And, you know, it's really a mental exercise, which one you decide, you know, is is there a kilometre discount on the sole shares or is it that they thinking, looking beyond the current boom and building products, they think it's got to slow down a year's time because the stock market looks out 18 months or so? You know, what? You know, is it they think there's going to be inflation and, and the interest rate's going to go up and therefore the, there'll be cap rate expansion on the industrial and it'll come down in value? You don't know what goes through people's mind, but it's a bit of a mental exercise where you put it. A normal sort of company, remember that we're the only company on the stock market that has a cross shareholding. Um, it is legal today. You couldn't do it again, but it is legal today. Uh, it was grandfathered. Uh, would buy back its shares, but we can't really do that. So we're sort of limited. We're hands held behind our back. But it is a concern, and uh, we're always thinking of uh, creative ways in which we may be able to help uh, close that. And uh, you know, one of the things is we're trying to focus more on the retail shareholders who want the dividend stream. And let's face it, the, a 3% 40 franc dividend is, is much better than anything you get in the bank. Yeah. And with <laughs> our history of paying it, you, you know, matter of fact, you put, if you put money in the bank, they don't they don't pay you more interest every year. Whereas you put, you know, invest in, in uh, Brickworks, you get a higher dividend every mm-hmm. year. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is an interesting choice when you think about, do you uh, just let the market figure out that you're undervalued compared to your net assets and let time take its course or do you do you take active steps to really try and close that gap so I mean, how, how do you think about that, that choice? Yeah, we, we just spent a lot of time thinking about it. Well, I come and see people like equity mates. <laughs> because, you know, we really, really, really want to focus on retail shareholders that can see that, you know, 3% franc dividend is much better than putting your money in the bank, mm. particularly when you've got a long history of, of paying it. You know, I get paid to increase value for my shareholders. So the last thing I want to do is, is actually, you know, um, issue equity. Mm. So that sort of limits in that area, you know. So it makes it quite hard. And, um you know, recently, one of the areas where we thought we might have been undervalued, that people weren't valuing, you know, the Sol Patterson's holding at the right level. Um, and they mostly were doing that because they're thinking that it wasn't real cash and there's all sorts of things that have been floating around about ghost equity and stuff like this. So um, so we sold some. The price was very high and we're worried about a liquidity event on their side of it. They're going into the MISCI index. Um, so we sold some and we, that's when we dropped back to 39.4%. And that was to prove to the market that 
uh, we could sell these shares and we would get real cash. And then, of course, but down the track, we had to pay real tax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that's what sort of limits us. But because you can't go buy it back. But I think it, it got them a 60% free float. Um, it got them into the ASX 100, you know, robustly. Um, the share price then recovered. I think we did that at about $28. Um, the share price recovered and now it's like 32 33 So it worked exactly what we, we thought. You know, we've got less shares, but they're actually worth more. Um, and it proved to the market that, that it was real. It, was, you know, it wasn't phony. Yeah. Mm. So we will just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then get back into it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Lindsay, no doubt that last year was a pretty disruptive year for all businesses, given the um, COVID. What was the impact of COVID on Brickworks, on uh, you know the many the different divisions that you've got? Did you have to make any drastic changes? Yeah, look, a year ago, I guess we wouldn't be sitting here laughing and joking. It was uh, we would have been locked up somewhere. Yeah, so, yeah, it was. Look, it really was a different year. It was for everybody, and there was. And I, I'll break that down into 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 three parts. Sure. First of all, like I say, like the industrial sheds just found another gear and took off. Um, you know, and that all of a sudden people realised that wow, you know, this uh, click and collect and you know online. And delivery and all this sort of stuff is here for real and I don't know about you guys but I get par- a couple of parcels arrive every day and I'm you know they're coming from all over the world you know so it's it's really now part of a way of our life um, and we'll continue um, and the reason why these big ships are getting bigger and not they're getting stuck in the Suez Canal <laughs> <laughs> because you know so you know and they're making shipping so cheap so you know that, that's here to stay and that's been great and um and that's really given that business a, a, a shot in the arm, and um, that was all well underway. And and because of it, the government gave us some very rapid um, approvals. You know, Amazon and um, a few other things. There, new plants we're building ourselves got through. In the in the in Australia, we were lucky that we were considered uh, essential service, so we never got shut down. We were able to deliver product. You know, builders that are building houses, there's a couple of trades on site. They drive to work. They're there on their own. I mean, there was no risk at all of getting COVID, so they're fine. And that was the same all the way through, except this last lockdown in Victoria where they wouldn't let us deliver for four or five days there. So but we sat down and said, okay, what are we got to do? What's the new world going to be like? What have we got to do to come out of this other side stronger than we are now? What, you know, what have we got to do? We said, okay, well, first of all, we've got to look after our staff, and they're going to be working from home. And so we're going to have lots of training. We have lots of meetings. We're going to be communicating. We're going to be making sure that their their, their wellness is there, that their good mental state. Uh, and we pursued that aggressively. Besides, set up all the normal things, and we were very well equipped because we had a lot of biomedical kits throughout the company. We'd set up for the Ebola. People thought I was mad in Ebola. They don't think I'm mad now because we just opened the kits, pulled out the thermometer. We had all the has, hazmat gear, everything. Right. So that all just happened instantly, very early in February. You know, and. Um, I was getting myself a little bit of trouble from the government because I said they should have closed the borders. Um, <laughs> but so that all went. So we did we had four things, our staff. Um, two, that we could see that what the sort of products that people wanted was changing. They wanted maybe more homely type products and there were more models and we'd been monochromatics and we didn't have many mono, uh, models in our range. And so we set a very religious, very disciplined product development and that was also to keep people occupied. I was stunned at how quickly we produced some of the most amazing products and that resulted in what we call the 
launch, which was in October. We launched over 100 new products. It was the biggest thing we ever did, all done online. Um, and that was, that's was that been amazing success, and those products are selling strongly today. We realised it was important that we needed to keep our capex up because, once again, we were at the bottom of the cycle. We wanted to invest in the counter-cyclical. We're going to need those plants going forward. We want to be competitive. Uh, and we got very quick. We got the approval, like in, in six or 12 weeks. It was just amazing, which could take it, you know, two or three years. Yeah. So that was a brand new Brickworks, uh, 130 million. We, we, it wasn't original. It was 100 million. We increased it 130 million brick capacity. $130 million, a new masonry works, uh, $70 million, and a lot of other things. So that, you know, that that sort of, you know, really coming through. And the, the other thing we realised is that the way we were going to relate and communicate to our customers and our engineers and architects was going to change. And so we started doing what we're doing here, broadcasting. Um, and we went from able to fit 50 people in our design studios to to getting to 400, you know, to getting to two or 3,000 online. Um, to, and that was just incredible. And they're, they're all over the world. They come from 10 and 15, mm-hmm. 20 countries. You know? So that worked well. So we've since actually built two broadcast booths. I outside my office have a proper broadcast booth, a little one. And then we have a big one that seat four people uh, at a design studio in, here in Sydney. And we're building another one in New York, in a New York design studio where the same thing. And so we'll be able to run events from New York and then and stream it here into Sydney. And, and that's just the way of the future. Yeah, you know, that's so. cool. Every business is now investing in that that kind of broadcasting capacity. Yeah. I mean, it takes a bit to set up. But when it costs us, you know, best part of a million dollars. And uh, But, you know, you've you, you got that many lights on. You've got to have massive air conditioning and, this, mm. you know, mm. anyhow. Um, but in America, it was a really quite different story. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were impacted by COVID. You know, there's no way you're going to get the Americans to sit at home. Um, <laughs> and I mean, they tried different things, but I mean, and, and some of the areas of the Midwest, we had like one of in Iowa, we had a meatworks down the road, 2,000 employees, and went through there like smoke, and you know, everyone's away. So the, the statistics are horrifying. Um, we had single days with 10% of our workforce away, so we couldn't keep the plants up. We've had over 10% of our staff. We've got about 800 staff there, so really about 100 have had it. But the most horrifying statistic is that we lost – we didn't lose any staff members, but we lost 20 of their family members, All right. which was very tragic and um, you know very difficult on my staff over there that was you know, trying to look after those people. Mm. Um, but look, you know, having said that, they're out of it now, and this is something that people we don't realise. I mean, we're out of winter, but we're out of COVID. We, we're lucky to have single digits away today. And my view is by, you know, the end of April, you know, COVID will be a thing of the past in the United States. I mean, they're currently vaccinating the population of Australia every week. Yeah. yeah. Know, so they're, they're counting out of this at a million miles an hour. And as you know, we're, we're not so so quick on these things. So we're struggling a bit. <laughs> so um, we'd love to understand what you think the outlook for uh, Brickworks is. And I guess in particular, the buildings products business. I, I imagine a lot of people listening, and I, I don't want to speak for Bryce, but uh, definitely me, are... Uh, it's not a business that I have thought a lot about. So what are some of the key drivers of the industry and of the Brickworks business uh, that investors should be aware of? Well, our biggest business is, is bricks, or, and the second business is masonry and roof tiles, and they go majority into housing. Yes, we do a lot of basements and things in commercial buildings, and we're doing a lot of the railway metro stations at the moment in, in concrete blocks. But, but the ex- interesting stuff is, um, is the bricks. And so the drivers, of course, is... is the amount of detached houses. And of course, what's come out of COVID, we're seeing this big shift back to houses from apartments, which we think is fabulous. <laughs> and you know, people moving from, from you know, not only from, from apartments to houses, but also from the city to the regional areas. Mm. Um, 
and this is worldwide. This is not just here. This is happening worldwide. So that that I think is a trend that even if it comes back a little bit when COVID's over, I don't think it'll revert immediately. People, people, a lot of people had a real deep think while they've been sitting at home for six or twelve months and said, "Well, I don't really like my life, and this is what I'd really like." And a lot of companies are saying, "Well, we only want you here two or three days a week." So, uh, and some companies are even saying. You, you got to stay home Monday and Friday, so yeah. so well. I don't need to live in Sydney. I can work anywhere. I'll I'll, I'll work in the country somewhere and then just commute. Mm. What they haven't worked out, of course, is that if somebody's job can be done from somewhere in the country, what well, can also be done from from the Philippines yeah, or India. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'd be a bit careful. I said, oh, I, I came to the office every day. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this recent run up in house prices, especially in regional areas, is a great forward looking indicator for you guys. I, I, I think so. And what it does, it makes um, medium density development stack up that something a project was a bit marginal is now not marginal it's, it's very doable and I think so that always gives it a bit longer legs uh, the, the only negative in the horizon of course is the lack of immigration um, although we were at cyclical low you could see that the uh, vacancy rate was very low the rental vacancy rate was low and even though you would have thought a lot of students went home and a lot of uh, backpackers and things but you know the, the vacancy rate's low across the country so you know usually that's an indicator that people need houses and particularly if they can get the ownership level up you know I don't, I don't hold me to this but say the ownership level 60%. You know, if you can get it to 61 or 62, now that's a good thing for our country, but there's a lot of people in 1% of the population going from a renter to an owner. That's that's a yeah, that's true. a good thing. And young people, this because it never was so good for them. They, you know, they could get 25,000 from the government. Some states gave 25,000. A lot of couples took 25,000 each out of their super. You know, yeah. they got 100,000. I mean, when could you ever get a $100,000 deposit? You know? Yeah. Um, so that was obviously driving it. Investors are coming back and upgraders are, are there. So. Mm. So Brickworks is a leading brickmaker here in Australia and over in the US. Are there any plans to expand into other markets, Europe, Asia? At the moment, I just really want to get a really good um, base, you know, beachhead in the US and get that up to where, where we think it can go. Um, I think over time, there's going to be more acquisition opportunities there. To give you some idea, pre to the GFC, America was making about 10 billion bricks per annum. And they're building about 2 million houses. Um, after GSC really got knocked around, and it's only got back to about you know the moment one and a half million houses and about four billion brick. So I would think there's a fair bit of um, return, a lot of, a lot of surplus capacity which we've been doing our best to soak up and sort out, particularly in our area. But I, I think if there's a good solid boom over there, you know, the next three to five years, and everyone's talking about you know low interest rates for long term, I'd, I'd be a bit worried about inflation coming back. But but yeah, they want really solid full employment. And, and good inflation before they, they take their foot off the gas. So. For comparison, how many bricks are we doing in Australia? Uh, Australia's about one and a half billion. Yeah. It, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, our bricks are bigger, though. Um, Australian bricks are about a third bigger than an American brick. Really? Right. So our, our one and a half billion is more like you know, two and a bit, you know, bigger right. US ones here. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, we give one, a hard time one, about one it. So you, you call that a brick? Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just would have assumed that bricks would have been standard around the world. Yeah, well, well, considering that we sort of came from England, you'd think so, wouldn't they? But um, no, we make a, we mainly make one or two sizes in Australia, but in um, the US, it would be pretty normal. We could make a 10 or a dozen in every plant. Right, okay. Wow. There you go. Reduce the size, charge the same price, and yeah. away you go. <laughs> That's what they do in retail. Yeah. <laughs> no, the bricks are the best thing you can buy. We guarantee them 100 years. I mean, you know, what, what, what could you buy better, better value than a brick? <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Lindsay, we, we do love uh, to ask some questions around, I guess, like people and culture and, and leadership. A lot of the uh, fund managers we speak to talk about um, the importance of that, uh, of, of who the leader is and the culture that they're trying to build. Um, so, we'd love to get some of your thoughts on it. I guess starting here, um, as a CEO, do you have a leadership philosophy? Well, I do, but it's sort of like it's evolved over a lifetime. Like leadership's not not something you're born with. I think leadership's something that you you learn as you go along, and you make a few mistakes, and you try and improve it. And um, and also, what's required of you is changing. I mean, you've only got to look at the discussions around. You know, in the US, the big thing is a, is a racial discussion, and and here we've got the whole discussion about you know women not being treated properly. You know, and some of these things. I mean, I got, it stuns me a bit because I thought you know most companies got over this you know 10 or 15 years ago but there's some basics if you don't if you don't do some basic things like looking after your staff no one's going to look up to you as a leader they're going to look down to you so it's really really important that you know you're honest um, you do what you say you treat people with dignity um, you look out for people it might be outside the company rules but if someone's got a problem you step in and give them all the aid and assistance you can um, if you don't do those basic sorts of things, you won't get any respect at all. And I think that's where leaders sometimes go wrong, and they, they can't understand that you know that that, that happens. Um, and, and that then goes back to if you've got an employee, you know, we have like a no no asshole rule. And, and, <laughs> and if you've got a, you know you, if you've got somebody who's a bit of a bastard to work with, then it disrupts everybody around them, and they can't do their job, and all they, and they've got this you know, conflict, and so you've got to go find them and get rid of them. Mm. Um, you know, and that's important. You do that. I, I think I've got a pretty good team at the moment. They're all happy, you know, because there's no one. You know, they come to work, do their job, and you know, they go home and they and you know. So those sorts of things are important. But there's a whole lot of basic things you need to have a plan around. You know, how you're going to you know, train and develop people. You're going to give them promotions. I mean, people become very uh, loving towards the, uh, the company if they get promotion. You know, and if they end up at a level they never thought they would achieve, and they could, that doesn't have to be in the high levels. I, we had a, a guy who was a greaser, and we wanted. Fitters, so instead of going outside, we said to him, Do you want to do an adult apprenticeship? And I worked his wages, so his wages never went down, they only went up. And four years later, five years later, he said to me, I never ever thought I'd be a tradesman. You know, and some of these guys then went on and did a second trade, you know, they're double certified. So we've got some wonderfully um, skilled employees that have come up, you know, but they'll, they'll work with us forever. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Never thought, I mean, they earn, earn huge money, but now, uh, mm. but, but, they, but yeah, so that they, they work forever. And that's what we want. We want yeah. people to stay with us. So we'll go out of our way to make sure that we look after our staff. To, mm keep them you know yeah for those in our uh, community who are aspiring uh, c-suite or gms um when you're hiring leaders within your business are there any sort of key characteristics that you you know don't compromise on well if we're hiring for the most senior levels um we do a pretty pretty tough um analysis and one of the analysis we do which you might not hear about is uh, we do a sort of a graph um and on one side, it's like on the vertical, it's like maturity of decisions. And then on the other axis, it's um, your agility. Now, and then we graph everybody out. And like anything, you know, you've got a, a bunch, most of your staff are in the middle. You've got a, a few on the left that aren't so agile <laughs> and a few on the right um, that, that, you know, are very agile and make very good decisions. And they're your, your top leaders. Mm. And now you might say, why? And the answer is this, is that, the problems that the chief executive gets are problems that no one else in the business could solve uh, and usually haven't seen before. And you've got to come up with a creative decision to get out of it. And if you don't solve it, you've got a problem. Mm. Right? So um, creative and you need to make, as I said, you know, responsible decisions. You can't you know, make, make flippant decisions. You might make them quick, but you, they've got to be considered. Um, so that, that's that's what we look and uh, And that's, that's worked, out, worked out pretty well for us. Yeah, nice. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. Mm. 
So people often love talking about the best times as a leader or as an investor. We want to maybe ask you about one not so good time. Uh, was there, is there a particular mistake uh, as a leader that stands out for you uh, in your time at Brickworks and what were some of the lessons that you learned from it? Yeah, because well, when you sort of said that, but look, I tell you the worst day for any chief executive is when one of your staff or a member of the public gets killed, you know. And you know that they, they you know, sort of put a bit of a bummer on it, yeah. but but you'll never forget those days. You know, no one gets paid enough to have to tell a family that they've, you've just killed their son or daughter or something. You know, like that's just they're just yeah. they're just terrible, terrible days. Um, and you know, yes, there's a lot of soul searching goes on. Could we, what could we have done different to avoid it and that? And, but but sometimes it's just out of control, or your staff member was just an innocent bystander. You know, things happen. But um, but look, as far as making uh, mistakes. Uh, you know, yeah, look, good question. I could I could think of a few things, but look, you don't always get things right. Right, um, you sometimes make mistakes on people, and you wish you hadn't have because or you went too long. You know. Um one of the things that I always look out for is the people not being a self-starter on people problems. You know, right people on the bus, wrong people off the bus. Mm. And you know, it's very easy for, to wait too long. You know, I like to give people a decent chance to prove themselves. But but inevitably, when you let them go, the, everyone else comes along and says, oh, yeah, I thank God for that. And well, we just can't work out. You didn't know he was doing this and doing that and something you know, like So... You're getting your people right is very important and, and you'll always feel feel disappointed in yourself if you wait too long. Yeah. Um, we've done a lot of acquisitions and of course you're not always going to get them right. Um, I thought that, that the timber industry would be a good one for us because we were using and um, preparing hardwoods and it was a fashion item. We could get high prices for it. But it was just, you know, supply line was always back to the government. And, you know, you could never invest because you could never get a log license long enough to to warrant the investment. So you ended up with all these worn out old mills, which were dangerous and people were getting hurt. And, you know, and then the other thing with the timber industry is that, you know, you saw a log and you're lucky to get sort of 30, 35% out of it the first time. It was a lot of waste. Then you dry it and it shrinks 15%. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so you think about it, you only got 20 or 25% of what you started with. You try to make a profit out of it. So it's very hard. And, you know, yeah, maybe we should have got out of there a bit quicker. Other things, you know, like the tile business was a great business. I loved it and I had a lot of experience in it. Um, but, you know, it, was, it worked well when the Aussie was 75 cents. But, you know, at 85 or 90 cents, you know, it was in trouble. And we, we just thought we can't, we started to lose money. And then we decided to get out. But lucky we did because the dollar went to a dollar ten. Yeah, yeah. You remember? A dollar ten would have smashed us. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, sometimes it's not your fault. It's just the, the world changes and it, it no longer works. So mm-hmm. you just got to move on. Yeah. And then on the flip side, Lindsay, are there, is there a moment that you look back on and uh, you're particularly proud of from a leadership point of view? Yeah, yeah look, I think um, I think you know, putting the property trust together was 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 um, a stroke of genius, and I guess maybe the Bristol was, but but you know it wasn't easy. Like people think, oh, I think sometimes think when you know also we get this approval to build a new plant or something that it was easy. They don't realise that that. You know, we've had to do, A, a lot of work to convince the board. I mean, it's easier these days. Um, they're very, very supportive. But, um, you know, the Bristol acquisition, I went to the board four times to get it. We ended up paying a bit more than we otherwise would have, but we did get it through. And it was vital to the company in the future years because Western Australia boomed and New South Wales was a disaster. And without Western Australia, we would have been a mess. And so it, it was it really worked out to be a great decision. But but the property has absolutely exceeded everybody's um, um, any any idea that we ever thought we would do as well or be as big and it just was nowhere there. I mean, clearly we're going to very close and very soon we'll clear a billion dollars in assets in there. Wow. Um, and it's growing topsy-turvy. And, um, 
you know, yes, I did have to argue with the board a few years to get them to realise that we need to hang on to this land and not, not just sell it. Because you sell it, you pay a special dividend, and then what? You've got yeah, nothing, nothing to show yeah, for it. Yeah. You take it a bit slower and you invest it, and then down the track. And it's it's grown at 18% a year. Uh, gets us, it's it's better return than souls, even. You know, it's 12 or 13% mm. um, return annually. You know, so it's it's a brilliant business. And anything, you know, we need to be pouring more, mon- more money into it. Mm. Yeah. So, mm. it's, got a, it's got a fair few blue chip clients as well, doesn't it? Like Coles uh, mm. has a warehouse there. Amazon? Amazon, yeah. We're building yeah. Amazon at the moment. Uh, well, you know, yes, a 20 year lease with a $1.7 trillion company. Not to me, <laughs> yeah. those are out. <laughs> so, one thing I can tell you is when that building's finished, it will be the lowest cap rate in Australia. Um, and it, you know, it has to be. Um, I was out there yesterday actually having a look at it. And it's just a, a massive building. I don't know how to explain to people. It's got twice the steel as the Eiffel Tower. It's, it's wow. bigger than, you know, it's, it's like it's 190,000 square metres. So it's like 40-something football fields. Wow. Right? wow. They had five teams laying concrete. Each team was starting about 4.30 in the morning. Each team laid a football field of concrete every day. They were there for five months. What? <laughs> what? Right, it's got five months. Five teams, right? So, and then then they had then the car parks, two thousand car spots. Jeez. You know, at the moment they've got to have they're working around the clock because Amazon is. If, if you said you can deliver it, you know, in three months' time, they want it in two. And then if you, if you, it's, I'll get it back to two. Now they want it in six weeks. Like, mm. It's just a relentless pressure. Wow. Where's wow. the facility? It's uh, we call it Oakdale West, but you'd call it um, Eastern Creek, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Um, Jeez. The Oakdale Estate is a very big estate. That is scale. Um, it is. It's, it's, it's enormous. And, yeah. um, you know, it's 10 storeys high and uh, it goes over the curvature of the earth. You know, it's like it's <laughs> 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 I say that, but you get anywhere near it, you'll see it because it just stands out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, What's yeah. that building over there? You know, yeah. So, yeah. And then Jeez. the Coles going in next to it is actually a bigger building. Um, different systems there. Amazon uses a, um, a stillage on, on, a, on a flat robot which runs around a million miles an hour and then brings it. The, the product to the, the the packer who takes it out and puts it in a tote that gets wrapped up. Whereas in the coals, you've got um, like a, a rack system where you've got a robot that runs up and down the racks and yeah. pulls out a couple of boxes of this or a couple of boxes of that to yeah. send out to, to the store. So Yeah. It's a fascinating, fascinating. world, all that mm-hmm. supply chain mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Lindsay, we like to uh, finish with the same final question. Um, but before we do, we just want to say a massive thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been a great interview. I think we've both got a lot of, out of it. I'm sure our audience will as well. Um, but we will finish with this final question. Um, if you think about Brickworks in 10 or 20 years, uh, what does success look like for you? Oh, look, success would be, you know, we continue growing uh, at the rate we are. And, you know, it won't be me, obviously someone else, but they'll have to be, you know, make some hard decisions about how, how they're going to grow the company. You know, I'd expect that we might be, you know, across three or four continents as far as the manufacturing side's concerned, that the property trust will be right down the east coast of Australia because um, we have other land in Victoria as well. And we might have acquired more land to, to develop. Oh, you know, it, I think Brickworks has, um, you know, might have been paying the dividend for 25 years and be considered a, a, a dividend aristocrat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which that would be good because uh, I intend to hold a few shares myself in retirement. <laughs> You're not going to be at the helm in 20 years? No. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, um, very much appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. As Alex said, our audience would have uh, got a lot out of that. We would certainly enjoy speaking to uh, CEOs and MDs to get a bit of an insight into the companies that are listed on the stock exchange and and our community can go and invest in themselves so thank you very much yeah my pleasure thank you equity mates investing podcast is a product of equity mates media 
All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.